0: This is the IBJ podcast for the week of March 4th, 2024, brought to you by Taft. I'm your host, Mason King. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. This will not come as a surprise to you, but I will tell you anyway, change can be hard. Systemic change or massive change across a large organization with lots of stakeholders can be particularly tough to manage. About three weeks ago, Lata Ramshan started her new job as incoming chancellor for Indiana University Indianapolis, which will be one of the products when IUPUI splits into two campuses on July the 1st. For folks not familiar with Indianapolis, its downtown is home to a major urban university, which actually is a partnership between the two largest state universities. It's called IUPUI or Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, and it has tens of thousands of students and hundreds of undergraduate, graduate, professional, and certificate programs and dozens of research centers. After 55 years, the school is decoupling, with the majority of the campus falling under the umbrella of Indiana University to be called IU Indianapolis. Lata Ramchand will preside over the transition which is billed by IU as a transformation on the IU Indianapolis side. It wants to establish IU Indianapolis as one of the nation's premier urban research universities, and to that end is planning two new research institutes on campus focusing on biosciences. It wants to double enrollment at its Luddy School of Informatics, Computing, and Engineering. And Ramshan wants to strengthen the link between students academic programs, and leading Indiana companies so graduates can build their careers in Indiana. On this week's edition of the podcast, Ramshant discusses her upbringing and education in Mumbai, India, which predisposed her to the energy of urban institutions. Prior to joining IUI, she served as provost and executive vice chancellor for academic affairs at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. She also discusses her goals as Chancellor of IU Indianapolis, the importance of multi-channel communication, the issues that can arise when trying to institute big changes, and why she's up to the task. Here's our conversation. It's my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Lata Ramshan, who on February 12th became the chancellor of IUPUI and who will be the chancellor of Indiana University, Indianapolis when IUPUI splits into separate IU and Purdue campuses in July. Lata, thank you so much for making time.
1: Thank you, Mason, and pleasure to be here.
0: So you were coming to us, as, as we were talking just before, from Columbia, Missouri, where you were the provost and Executive Vice Chancellor for Academic Affairs at the University of Missouri. Columbia has about 1,250 people. As you said, during football games, I think we all can understand uh, about Midwest college towns. Now you're in a city with about a million people, but you grew up in what what we used to call Bombay, India, and is now Mumbai. Its population currently is about 21 million. But when you were growing up in the late 60s to the to the mid 80s, then between 6 million and 12 million people, Mm -hmm. you know, New York City style uh, population. So, you come from a real big city. Just so we can get to know each other better, I wanted to ask you about growing up there. For example, were your experiences in school, like if there's something, you know, similar to a kindergarten through like a K through 12 experience?
1: So the the system of education we had there was the British system. So it's very similar to what you have here. English was our first language, although we spoke a different language at home. But it was very similar to what you'd have here in terms of the schooling. What was different, though, was the number of students in every class. My high school graduating class had a lot of students like I want to say thousands of students. So it was everything there is you take what is here in terms of population and you scale it by say a factor of five. So honestly, the response to your question, if I may invert that is when I came here and by here, I don't mean to Indianapolis, but to the United States, my first question was, where is everyone? Literally, that was an issue. And I am so used to the sound of the human voice, and people around you all the time, you you sort of tune them out because you had to do that. But just having the sound of the human voice in the background is always very comforting to me. So growing up, that was a big, big part of our experience as people, seeing people, knowing that you coexist, knowing that there are people of all kinds who have different opinions, who who look different. In India, there are, you know, 21 or 23 or now I don't know, maybe 33 different languages. So the variety and the diversity and the people is just something that I took for granted. And now I realize why I'm drawn to an urban area is that I mean, I can't go to sleep without the TV being on. I have to put it on sleep mode because I can listen to someone speaking as I fall asleep. So that's how much I depend on that human connection, which would not have happened but for the fact that I was raised in a city with that kind of a population.
0: When you came to America, you uh, went to Northwestern to get your, is it the, your doctorate?
1: Yes. So yes. that's
0: Chicago area. Yes. And then you were in Houston, which is by itself a right. large city. Although
1: to be factually accurate, I was in Oklahoma City for a while. Oh, you're right. Yes. And then went to Northwestern. But yeah, big cities. So I liked that big city vibe.
0: Did I understand that you were the first member of your family to go to college?
1: Yes. I am a first-gen student and... To go back to what I said earlier, uh, I grew up in a very loving, caring environment. My parents were all about serving people, so people and service was huge. It was something I didn't think twice about. And they wanted me to go to college, so I did. And it was uh, the faculty and the uh, the instructors in that college that really inspired me to think about higher education, coming to the U.S. and getting a Ph.D., all of which was. Not something that we spoke about in the family, but my faculty, the people who mentored me, just amazing people.
0: If somebody from India wanted me to explain where I come from, I'm from the middle class. My dad was a lawyer. My mom was a school teacher. So is is there something like your experience Very similar, middle class. What did your dad do?
1: He actually worked for Pfizer in India and he didn't have a college degree, but he worked in the public relations space And that was probably another reason why. And he grew up dirt poor, like you cannot even imagine. And he just pulled himself up by his bootstraps, just did very well in terms of where he was and where he retired. And he always was, I mean, he was the biggest spokesperson for Pfizer in India, according to me. (laughs) But just a great environment growing up.
0: So were you identified as a high achieving student when you were growing up? I mean, it sounds like The education system, like you say, I mean, you have to size up by a factor of five. I don't know if if they even have the ability to like separate people out.
1: We didn't have anything that identified you as, you know, fill in the adjectives, okay? But again, thanks to some amazing people who helped mentor me and train me, me and a friend of mine were always participating in every competitive collegiate event. So whether it was debates or public speaking or drama or any opportunity where we had to make a case for something using public speaking skills was something that we just would always sign up for it, no matter whether we were prepared or not. And then that forced you to get prepared, right? So, And so academically, we were on the states. Again, this is like a state-level exam. Your 12th grade exam is a state-level standardized exam. And not the SAT, but what you do in school. And so the state ranks you. And I was second in the state. So it was it was a, a big deal, but nothing unusual. It was a big deal from, from the outside. But from my perspective, it was what we did at home. My parents encouraged me to do my best.
0: Did you have any role models in particular when you were growing up?
1: Gandhi was like a big... He was in your lives, so whether you liked it or not. And some of the stories my dad would tell me... What struck me was always what he achieved with the degree of humility he had. And that's something that has become a part of who I am. I hope that comes through, but but especially in higher ed, right? We're all here to learn. And the minute you enter an institution of higher education, it's like going into a temple. You leave all your degrees and your titles behind. You have to earn that every day by what you do inside that institution especially when, you're, when you have the ability to learn from amazingly talented people. So unless you have that humility to say, I still have so much more to learn, you know, you're not really leading and improving the institution.
0: Did you have a predisposition for math? Or was that something <laughs> that,
1: that your yeah.
0: parents said, you're going to be good at math?
1: They didn't say anything, honestly, because they didn't go to college. It was all about you do your best. My dad would always say, don't study too hard. You need to have some fun as well. But yes, I loved numbers. And the way it was structured in India at that time was we had to choose between the arts, science, and commerce. And I had some artistic things I wanted to pursue, so I decided to go arts. But if you went the arts route, you were not required to take math. And that was a problem to me. So a group of us got together and requested that we be taught math. And so, yes, from a relatively um, early point in my career, that was very appealing.
0: Because you graduate with a bachelor's uh, in economics. Yes. uh, With a minor in history. And then you went on at uh, University of Mumbai to get your master's degree in economics. What was appealing to you about economics?
1: (laughs) The rationality, Right. Of course, now we, uh, I know better that it's an assumption of rationality, but it's, it's very comforting when you can make those assumptions and you get some really neat models that can help you understand how the world behaves. And then over time, you realize you need to sort of crack those assumptions to make it more realistic.
0: So what did you think you were going to do with a master's in economics?
1: I had no idea what I wanted to do in terms of careers or anything. I just wanted to learn, keep, continue to learn. You could say I was totally lost. I was in, you know, I had no idea. But on the other hand, the learning process was—I enjoyed learning for its own sake. But I also knew that I wanted to come to the United States to get a PhD, whatever that meant at that point. I didn't know what it meant. So after coming here, though, after working at a bank in Oklahoma City is when I realized why um, there is so much more to learn in that space, in finance. I worked at an analyst, as an analyst at the bank and that's what made me want to go back and get a PhD.
0: So we're gonna fast forward yes, real quick. Yes, please. University of Houston, you were a member of the business school faculty in the early 2000s, became an associate dean in the College of Business in 2006, then dean of the College of Business 2011, then went to the University of Missouri, where you served as provost and executive vice chancellor for academic affairs beginning in 2018. So now you find yourself in a position where you are presiding over a generational amount of change in a very short period of time. So I would assume that communication really is job number one. Yes. I mean, for the students, for the faculty, for the administration, that that is the thing that's going to make this work is whether or not you have buy-in well, then people understand what's happening. Yes. So, what do so what you do in your job yeah. now to make sure that happens?
1: Communicating. I'm still trying to figure out how communication happens. So, each institution has a different culture around that, right? So, on my first day on the job, my first meeting was with students, my second meeting was with staff council, and my third meeting was with faculty council. And uh, we're, we have – I'm changing some of these meetings so it's not a long meeting with really no takeaways – but more focused, one one-on-one. I cannot imagine not having my conversations with people who report to me directly at least once in a fortnight, right? It has to happen. And then we meet in a group. The same thing with the deans. We're going to every college on campus, and we've done about five of them so far, going through the college, meeting with the staff, meeting with faculty, if they are in their offices, at the same time meeting with the deans one-on-one. The deans report directly to the provost, not to me. But I think it's useful and important for me to talk to them one-on-one to understand their aspirations and their challenges. So we've started doing that, but it's not a once-and-done deal, right? It has to continue. So figuring out more ways to do that. I will attend every basketball game that I can. I'm already encouraging students. It's right there in the jungle, just across from my office. We have to be present at those games, right? Irrespective of, of the whether our team wins or loses, We have to be there to support them. So sharing that message, understanding what our student needs are, whether it's one-to-one conversations, whether it is just going out to the, the the university center and having lunch with students or with faculty, I feel like we do a lot of formal communications, not just here, everywhere, and we assume that if things are on a website, of course we've communicated. No, nobody looks at the website unless we nudge them to looking at the website, whereas a direct email from me or a handwritten note. I'm huge on handwritten notes. I think they go a long way. Now, I haven't done anything yet. So, you might want to ask me a year from now (laughs) as it were, but
0: yes. So, let's talk about your priorities now as chancellor. When you were announced as a chancellor, the very first line of the press release said that you will, quote, lead the reimagined campus into a new era as one of the nation's premier urban research universities. Can you unpack that? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. I see our role. So if you look at our strategic plan, the vision that President Witten has, that the Board of Trustees is fully supportive of, it's an amazing vision. And it, it has three broad pillars, student success, research excellence, and service to the state. Okay. Let's start with the last one, service, service to the state and let's go back to the to the uh, definition or the you know h- how we are thinking about ourselves public urban research university as a public university serving the state our priority is to make sure that what we do inside the walls of a university campus helps improve the way we live work and play for the citizens for our region for the state specifically i think of two things one is the workforce, the talent, and what I would call the human capital needs of the region. How are we serving those needs, right? We can't do it just sitting inside the university. We need to connect, connect with the community, with industry leaders, with legislators. What are the skills you are hiring for? We need to listen to that input, bring it back into our university, talk to the academics, and see if we can wrap our academic DNA around what industry needs Put it into our curriculum so that it is not just academically rigorous, but it's also relevant and graduate the human capital that the industry needs. So that's a responsibility for us if we want to say we we are a publicly funded university. So that's the first thing. And we're doing it in so many different ways we can talk about. The second part of that is regions and states and cities grow when there is innovation, right? Innovative ideas spur economic growth and development. And that innovation starts with having that curiosity mindset. At universities, we call it research. Someone at the University of Missouri, the person who won a Nobel Prize once told me that a friend of his was just interested in the caterpillar, just curious, right? And that's all he spent his life on. I'm not saying we all do that, but it's that spark of curiosity, which you start with, I don't know where this is leading, but I just want to learn more. But that curiosity becomes research that we incentivize our faculty to do. And when it's done in a way that serves the needs of the region, for instance, we do research that can help us come up with, say, solutions to to our disease burdens, whether it's cardiovascular or diabetes. It's not just the city and the region in our state. The world needs that, right? When we can transform that research into innovative ideas Medical devices, which this region is known for, the bioscience, the biotechnology, the life science industry in that in this region is pretty compelling, right? It's got a strong presence. So if we can use the research that our faculty are doing to connect to what the industry needs in ways that will not just recruit human capital, but also spur innovative ideas, then we've also sort of met our responsibility of being a public urban research university, or else we become a teaching school. Nothing wrong with that. But if we claim to be a research university, that's a responsibility. The nice thing is that all these three things, right, whether it's human capital needs, research needs, they speak to what is in our strategic plan, student success. Our students will succeed if we give them career opportunities that help them to get a job even before they get an offer before they graduate. And that's what's going to happen if we connect with industry. The research needs, if we can help industry grow through innovation, then our faculty will become research productive. And if we can aspire to the highest standards of research, then that makes all, all of us better off. So all those pillars in our strategic plan, in my mind, blend very well with our requirement that we serve the needs of our citizens. So those are three priorities.
0: So let me put some dollar figures on that. This is just, this is the way I understand it. Uh, I could be wrong because the scope of what IU is trying to do here really is kind of mind-blowing and the amount of investment is really significant. So for example, IU plans to invest more than $250 million to create two new research institutes at IU Indianapolis? The
1: 250 is across the system. Across so, the system. Right, okay. Right.
0: But that will right. create two new. Yes. It's the Convergent Bioscience and Technology Institute. And the Institute for Human Health and Wellbeing. Yes. It also plans to invest more than a hundred million dollars on research in microelectronics, doubling enrollment at the Levy School of Informatics, Computing and Engineering. Is that located at, at IPOY or is it going to be located at IPOI? So it is
1: it has a presence at in Indianapolis, but it also has a presence in Bloomington. And the numbers you're talking about are for the the Yeah, this is
0: the whole thing. Okay, gotcha. But IU Indianapolis yes. will be a part of that.
1: Yes. The institute, the two institutes are being set up in Indianapolis.
0: IU Indianapolis also plans to spend $60 million in funds from the Indiana General Assembly to expand and renovate research and laboratory space as part of a new science and technology corridor. And that's IU Indianapolis. Yes. So yeah, three major prongs of things that are happening under your watch. Given everything that we've just said. Yeah. From a, like a 25,000 foot perspective, I don't know if you, if you have a whiteboard in your office, we know, here are the three things I really need to do in the next three years. What do you see as, as your top three priorities?
1: So, so the priorities really dovetail the, the goals in our strategic plan that we just talked about, right, that the president has. The research part of it is going to be critical because that's the big dollar investment. Research, to set up a research lab, when we, when we recruit faculty, they need Labs, especially if they're doing the kind of research we want them to do in biosciences and life sciences, and those labs are expensive. Startup package for, uh, say, faculty in engineering or technology, a really good researcher is at least a million dollars. So that those dollars will go away quickly if we hire a bunch of faculty. What that means then is we need to hold them accountable for for aspiring to the highest standards of research excellence. What do I mean by that? Fortunately for us in the United States we do receive federally funded grants that will help defray some of the costs of research, not all, but some. And so if you are doing research that has that is nationally recognized as being important, you can receive federal funding and you can receive federal support. So if we use the dollar investments that we're making as seed investments and we recruit faculty and we hold ourselves accountable to those standards, then we have the ability to bring in more funding through the feds And that will enable the kind of discovery and innovation that we talked about earlier.
0: How do you make progress on these kinds of goals when it seems like every university is trying to do something relevant to their state employers, offering 21st century jobs, and are focusing basically on the same goals?
1: I actually think that was one reason that attracted me to this role was that Indiana University in Indianapolis is a comprehensive public urban research university. But at the same time, the focus we have is on that bioscience, biotechnology, life science area. right? So universities can do almost anything, but we can't do everything. I think that you are actually seeing that here in so many ways. We're saying we're, we're standing up two new institutes, Everyone else says, what about me? And universities tend to say, okay, I'll give you another institute. I'll give you one institute. And soon we have 88 different institutes, each one of of which is doing marginal work. What we're saying here is the state has given us some seed funds. Our university leadership has provided some seed funds in areas that this region is already known for. And so let's leverage that expertise and build on that. This is not to say that all the other schools are not important. They are critical, right? The, the law school is critical. I mean, any business you want to run, you need legal expertise. The business school is tremendously important. You need that business expertise. So, But at the same time, we need a focus. And so I really think that this focus on the biosciences and the life sciences will set us apart.
0: Let's take a quick break so we can hear from our sponsor. This is the IBJ Podcast. Taft, today's modern law firm, with more than 800 attorneys in eight primary Midwest markets and the District of Columbia, we provide solutions to the business issues facing middle market and emerging companies alike. We do this through a highly collaborative and inclusive team approach. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. All right, we're back with this week's edition of the IBJ podcast in my interview with Alata Ramshan, Chancellor of IUPUI and the soon to arrive IU Indianapolis. So, between now and July, there will be a decoupling of the campus, the IU sides and Purdue sides. Are you pretty heavily involved in, in that as well?
1: Yeah, I'm involved in that. Uh, I want to say two things. So, one, we have amazingly Smart, but also good people here at i u Indianapolis, and so many of them have been working on this on the details of this realignment for a long time now, right, ever since it was announced and kudos to them, not just our uh, i u Indianapolis faculty and staff, but also the Purdue side. The collaborations have been uh, quite inspiring for me to to learn and understand, and the goal we meet every week to discuss details of the plan. How is this going to affect this group of students? How is this going to affect staff members and faculty members and communications and space? There's so many details to be worked out. So there needs to be constant attention to that. But the the thing that really inspires me is that collaboration and just keeping in mind the bigger goal, which is as far as the student is concerned this transition should be as seamless as possible to that student. And I feel like that is happening. The second thing I wanna say is, in addition to all the details, what I have learned in even the last two weeks is, this legacy and this history that IUPUI stands for is significant, is significant in ways that we should honor that legacy. We should honor that past before we go into the future. Even as the future looks, to me, it's a very compelling vision and it's exciting. It's exciting beyond words because it's a city and there's opportunities. But at the same time, when you make these changes, we need to take some time, pause, and honor the people who brought us to this point. And we are planning something around that.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I know from my my life as a journalist is that everybody hates change. I mean or they love the idea of change but they're not super excited about their little thing changing. Are you at a point in the in the process where a lot of that has been taken care of or are you still receiving resistance?
1: I don't know that it's resistance but it's definitely a sense of you know we couldn't go to the next stage unless we recognize the work that has already been done. For sure, for sure. And, and I think we need to respect that. So I don't, I don't disagree with that. And I know change is difficult. I would always joke in business school, you have faculty who do research. They're like, you know, these well-reputed researchers who research change management. You ask them to change the classroom they teach in and they'll throw a fit. It's just the nature of the process. We don't want change. And so it's something we have to live with, recognize, and we cannot assume that it's going to go away. But I really don't b- believe that it's going to hurt us as we transition. I just think we need to respect that change is difficult, change is hard. Communications are important. But at the same time, let's keep an eye on the future.
0: So uh, let me take you back to your job interview. Maybe you're meeting with, with Pam Witten. And uh, you probably rehearsed this answer <laughs> for, the, for the job interview. Why are you the change agent? Why are you the person to lead us through this change?
1: I probably should have thought of that in the interview. <laughs> but it was Would have been more of a good
0: question. No, it's yeah,
1: no, but it's more of a I'm sure they have choices, right? We all have choices. And I don't I wouldn't want to claim to be the only person who knows how to do this. Absolutely not. But I feel like I've lived through many changes in my roles, right? The business school in Houston, we changed the core curriculum in an MBA program. Let me tell you, changing curriculum. It's not about curriculum, it's a turf battle. It literally is. Yale University at that time, I remember they changed their curriculum. They spent like three or $5 million on it. And we didn't have that kind of a budget, but we changed the curriculum anyway. And so I've lived through that change. And then at Mizzou, a lot of changes as I, as I shared. So not that I'm the perfect change agent, but I feel like I have really learned through those experiences and it's brought in that sense of humility. That is, if we want to make change, you need everyone to be on board. You can't just say change is difficult, I'm going to ignore you. You still want them on board. So how do you work with them? And I really believe that there are enough good people in any organization that the ones the, that are you know, on, the, on the extreme side, the yahoos, as they would call them in Missouri.
0: They do that here too. Here,
1: Okay, so <laughs> we can come around and, and it's, good, it's good and smart people. Will agree with us.
0: So, you, when you meet with Pam a year from now and you get evaluated, what are the metrics for yeah. this? I mean, as I think you've said before, I mean, this really has not occurred before. There isn't a template for this. How right. do you get evaluated?
1: So, this is what I have used, and I cannot imagine another system, although I'm willing to listen to other ideas. Again, I go back to let's not complicate things. We have a strategic plan, we have goals, and we have KPIs or metrics. And even yesterday, I sent sent the list to someone and I said, these are things I would see from our strategic plan. It's, you know, student success is a goal. What does that mean? We need to make sure we retain students at the end of the first year. Retention rate, it's called the retention rate. Our retention rate should be upwards of 90%, right? Where are we now and how do we get there? The graduation rate, we love our students, but we want you to graduate in four, maybe six, but not more. Don't stay here too long. How are we doing on that? Are they getting jobs? You know, career placement rates. Research-wise, we have metrics: how many federally funded grants do we have, and these are met, or publications or citations or how many proposals are you submitting every year, Mr. Faculty or Mr. Dean or Ms. Dean. And we have this at the institutional level, which is what I would hope I will be evaluated on. We also have it at the unit level. So the same metrics that the units are going to be evaluated on are going to be the metrics I should be evaluated on for the whole institution. And once you have that cascade, then everyone feels ownership of that. Right down to the faculty member in the classroom. We have something called the DFW rates. The proportion of your students in your class that receive Ds or Fs or withdraw. When I was in school millions of years ago, (laughs) the mindset was, oh, we're very selective. And the first year is weed out here, and we weed people out. No, that is not how we treat people anymore. And so what proportion of your classes have high DFW rates? And why is that the case? Can we not help you? So it's, it's a two-way conversation. I can't just tell you go improve that. I need to make sure that we have a teaching for learning center that helps faculty improve the pedagogy so that they don't have those DFW rates. So, so there's a lot of things that go into that that I've been looking at. And all those metrics, I feel I should be evaluated for those.
0: So, I haven't attended IEPUI, and I'm fairly certain though that while there's a world-class medical school, there's a world-class school of informatics, there's a world-class law school, there's lots of coursework, very sophisticated and career-focused programs.
1: There's also a journalism program.
0: And and, and the journalism program, sure, right. There also are a lot of students who are first-generation college students and who are using IEPUI or IU Indianapolis to get their feet wet, basically, and- In higher ed, figure out what their strengths are, maybe what they want to do. What can you say you're going to bring to the university to help them?
1: So first off, understanding what their needs are. The numbers are, again, very compelling. Close to 28% of our students are first gen, which is amazing, which is very high. Institutions I've been at, it's never been that high. So what is it first gen students need? Right from, so what do we do? We ask students to apply. We admit them you know, based on criteria. And then if they decide to come here, then we sort of enroll them. Between the admit and the enroll stage, we have several days and sessions and webinars where we help the student and the parent understand what a university is about. How do you avail of financial aid? What is, God forbid, the new FAFSA about? And uh, how can we help you? So we host several of those events. We had one about 10 days ago, and I was there watching them post that, and that was for a certain, I guess, certain schools here uh, where they brought by bus the students that we had admitted, high school seniors, and many of them were Hispanic students, right, uh, Latinx students, and so I'm guessing that many of their parents didn't, just like me, maybe they didn't go to college, what are, what are their questions? How can we help them? financially think about what college means. For instance, when I came here, I had to go to an advisor. The concept of an advisor was new to me, an academic advisor. When I had to choose between courses, I talked to the person who taught and then I'd go ask my parents, oh, there's another person here to support you, to help you. So right from what does an academic advisor do, what are student organizations, what are all these people, you know, with tables hosting, you know, with papers, what is that about? What is a study abroad program about? So demystifying the college experience, including the buildings on campus, right? The labs, many of them have never been in a lab. So how do we take that and convert that into a learning experience for the student is a responsibility we have.
0: You've got a lot to do, so I'm not going to keep any anymore. Yes. But I, heard, we're going to have to revisit maybe in a year sure. and see how things are going. But this was just fascinating. And oh, I, thank, thank you. you so much for taking the time.
1: Of course. Thank you.
0: I thanks again to Lata Ramshan, And folks, before you get on with the rest of your week, there are a few stories in the latest print edition of IBJ I want to bring to your attention. First up, in the past 5 years, shares of Eli Lilly and Company have increased in value by 508%. Now, this is not news to the pharma giants 43,000 employees. Nearly 90% of whom have at least a few shares and some worth tens, or hundreds of thousands of dollars. John Russell explains how Lilly is enriching employee stockholders and is using its run-up to retain talent. Also in this week's issue, Susan Orr reports that the state's focus on attracting data centers to Indiana is starting to pay off. And Mickey Shuey shares his wide-ranging conversation with Indianapolis Motor Speedway President Doug Bowles about ticket sales for this year's Indy 500, whether a return of Formula One is on the horizon, and Roger Penske's continued investment in the track. And again, you can find these stories in the latest print edition of IBJ or online at ibj.com. And thanks again for making time for the IBJ podcast. I'm Mason King. Hang in there, everybody. We'll be back again next week.